there, and then we're going to jump into this text again this week. Father, in this moment, what we're praying for is help. Not just help in, in knowing what this text says, but help in believing it. Help in making the changes in our life that are necessary for it to be true. Help, Father, to, to, to be confident and, and help, Father, to, to trust the power of these words and the reality of these words in our everyday. What we're asking for, Father, is, is help to put this armor on so that our, our lives are not defenseless, that our, our desires and, and, and the will, Father, that we have in our heart and in our mind, that it not be corrupted and used for disaster and to be used for violence and destruction in the lives of, of the people around us. But on the other hand, Father, to, to put this armor on and, and to have a life that shines in, in beauty of integrity and of spiritual character and of love and of grace and of self-control and joy and peace. And so bless us during this time of study, Father. Give us not only eyes that see and ears that hear, but hearts that are ready to receive it. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, I want to begin with um, another story from the time that Ellen and I were missionaries in Brazil. During the early days of that ministry, there was a mother and her two teenage children who became members of our church family. And one of the things that you never want to see happen in anybody's life, and you never want to see happen in the life of a new Christian, is the loss of somebody very important. Within two weeks of that conversion, Franza, the, the husband of this, this new sister in Christ, the father of her two children, suffered this massive heart attack that was so extensive and explosive that the doctor said that Franza was dead before he fell to the ground. And within 24 hours, which is the custom in Brazil, the funeral is held amid great emotional anguish, as, as some of you can imagine. And on coming out of this church after that service, this family is met by two people. They look to me to be in their late 20s, their early 30s, who said that they had been in contact with Franza in the spirit world. And that they had a message from this husband. They had a message from this father to the family that he was doing fine, that they were not to worry about him, that he was in a good place, that he was experiencing peace. And then after a minute or two, conversation, these two young spiritists invited the family to a spiritist meeting where for a small fee they could hear the rest of the message. Well, this family was in such emotional turmoil. I mean, they feared for their future. They were scrambling to make sense of what had become of their life that they thought that perhaps this was something, a course of action that they should undertake. And so they turned to us, young missionaries, and asked us what we thought they should do. What would you do then? 
we could have responded with sarcasm. You can't expect the spirits to work for free. Spirits have to eat too. There's no free lunches in the spirit world. The spirits have babies to take care of. Or we could have dismissed it by simply saying, a message from the spirit world, that cockamamie story sounds like a con game if you ever asked me. But all you had to do was to look deep into the eyes of these wounded new Christians to know that to them, this was not a joke. And so what we did instead was to read to them these words from 1 John. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And that passage served as a starting point for more conversations about this invisible world, this world that we don't really have a handle on very well in the Western world. Now last week we began to think about this interaction that we have with the invisible world and we discovered a couple of things out of Ephesians chapter 6. First is this, as review, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces of evil and wickedness. In other words, behind the flesh and blood forms of evil is more than flesh and blood. The Bible teaches that there is an intelligent being who is the source of evil, who is the source of the temptation to do wrong. Now the Bible also teaches that the world, that is the world in the sense of the spirit of the age, uh, the German word zeitgeist, that, that the world and our human flesh are a pretty good combination for being responsible for sin as well, but that there's also a being, there is also a being whose very name means accuser, who is the source of temptation, the devil, Satan. And secondly, we learn that our enemy has an arsenal, uh, an arsenal, that he has schemes, that literally what Paul is writing in the original language is that the evil one has methods, that he is not a one-trick pony, that he has ways, that he has methods, he has an arsenal, in order to bring us down. But at the same time, we discover that we too have an arsenal in order to take our stand against the devil. And the first piece of that arsenal that we're going to look at this morning is the belt of truth. But I'm going to, before I get there, I want to finish one last thought about the spiritual battle that we're involved in daily. It's kind of a continuation from the thoughts from last week. The third idea that we get about this battle, this invisible uh, war that we're fighting, spiritual warfare, the third thing is this. Our attitude is to be shaped by a military metaphor. Let me say that again. Our attitude is shaped by a military metaphor. What Paul is doing by choosing this metaphor is causing us to think. He's not just, he's not just trying to entertain us. He's not just trying to be radical in the way that he writes about something. What Paul is doing is giving us a metaphor to cause us to think. And as we think, we begin to understand that he is giving us this governing disposition for dealing with the spiritual warfare reality. And Paul is using the military language not because he thinks that war is glorious. 
It's not because he thinks war is this wonderful adventure. The reason he's using this military language is because the spiritual warfare is serious business. And I think Paul uses the military language because our mindset has to be, as we think about accessing the, the spiritual armor and putting it on and taking our stand in the day of evil, which you know is more than just Monday of every week, we have to have an, an understanding that there is a tremendous difference between obedience and agreement in being successful in taking our stand against, against evil. And here's the difference. You work for a company. You've been working there every day, every weekday for the last 10, 15 years. You're the employee. You have a boss. You have a job description. And every week your boss meets with you or your manager, your supervisor meets with you and they ask you to do certain things. And on the job you do these certain things during the week and you get a paycheck and you do that week in, week out, day after day, week in and week out until they ask you in this company, to do something that you consider to be dangerous or you consider it to be kind of uh, contra your character or against your ethic. Now up to this point you've agreed with what they've requested and so you did it. But now they've asked you to do something and you don't agree and so you don't do it. And guess what? You even have the right to quit. Now that's different than from being in the military. Think back about every war movie that you might have seen over the last several years. In one movie in particular, I'll just use one as an example, in the movie Saving Private Ryan, Captain John Miller, they're on the beach at Normandy, the, 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 the fire is coming down from the German positions, and Captain John Miller has to send men to attack a German machine gun position in order to secure their position on the beach, to make advancements in order to save other lives. And what he does in this, this scene by Spielberg, which is not even one of the major scenes of the entire movie, but it is done with genius. Is it, 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 you're hardly breathing during this, this invasion. He orders men to advance. And they do it. And they're shot down. And then he orders a second group. He just rattles off three names and says, to the front, advance. And they are killed too. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, they may not have agreed with that order. But they obeyed it anyway. And that's the major difference between obedience and agreement. Obedience is trusting someone enough to submit your will to their command. And in the military, on the battlefield, your relationship to your commanding officer is different from just about any other relationship that I can think of. You know, I can say that I am obedient to my wife until she tells me something that I disagree with. I can, I can, I can be, uh, uh, oh, and when I was growing up, I was obedient to my own parents until they told me something that I didn't really agree with, like you need to be home by 11.30. I didn't agree with that. I thought I needed to be home by 11.45. But in battle conditions, you just can't quit quit and walk away, can you? And this is the mindset that Paul is using. He is, he is trying to, to shape this kind of mindset because too many Christians, primarily in Ephesus, because that's where Paul is writing, but even in the Western world, and especially in these United States where independence 
is such an important right that we pursue. There are too many Christians that take on that employer-employee relationship with God and have called in sick. And then they want to know why in the world they keep falling down and falling down and stumbling and stumbling when it comes to dealing in the day of evil with, with the evil one. And what this means is that when you do that, you're out there without any armor on at all facing all of the methods, all of the schemes. In the old King Jimmy, the wiles of the devil when it comes to this kind of, of, of reality, spiritual reality. And I'm here to tell you, if, if you're really struggling with this obedience agreement issue in your relationship with God, that you obey, obey, obey until it's something that you disagree with or something that you might uncom be uncomfortable with, that's one of the reasons why you're struggling in your faith and in your walk to this day. And if you're just in agreement with God rather than completely sold out in obedience to Him as a disciple, that is one of the reasons why you have not made very many advances in the, in the, the spiritual character development of you as a Christian. More than any other thing that I can think of right now in this moment that our church needs to hear is this. Obedience will heal your soul. Obedience will heal your soul. Your soul. Think about Jesus. Consider Jesus in the crucible of the garden who's being crushed by the weight of what is before Him. And He says, I don't want to drink of this cup. I don't want to drink in this cup. That Boy, that sounds like agreement and disagreement, doesn't it? Until He says, but not my will, but what? Your will be done. Look, look at what it took for Jesus to be obedient in the garden. He suffered in the darkness for you. Scripture goes to long lengths to remind us that our sin was not just a death, but it was suffering and death for our sins. He suffered obediently in the darkness for you. He is completely obedient. We see Him in the garden. And not just in the garden, but every moment before that and every, every hour after that until his death, we see him as a man under orders. And what about us today in this self-indulgent, autonomous, and self-sufficient West? Are we as disciples, people under orders? Or are we obedient only with what we agree with and doesn't really cramp our style too much? You know, the reason that Paul is using this military language and this metaphor is not because he's bloodthirsty or thinks that war is some kind of glorious thing, but he's, he's being realistic about the importance of obedience. And that armor is not natural to us. It's not natural to us. It's something that has to be given to us. It is the armor of whom? It's God's armor that He is giving to us. And that armor is ineffective unless we have settled in our minds once and for all this obedience issue. Now, as I mentioned last week, one of the schemes of the devil, that is the diabolus in the, the original language, is to speak to the heartstrings that, that are inside of you to get one of them to resonate to his voice. Another way that you might think about that is to think about you have an emotion that gets injected with some kind of infection. It might be your thought life. It might be your emotional life. It might be something relational. But he infects it somehow with his injection of infection. Think about anger. Let's use anger as an, as an example. It's pretty easy. Anger can be good, right? Anger can be very good. Injustice 
should make us angry. God gets angry all the time. And yet He is perfect. He is without sin. But what if the devil injects a little bit of infection into the anger, which is perfectly okay, but with now with that infection injected into it, that anger turns into bitterness. Now it's easy enough to do. All the, all the devil has to do is to insert a reminder of a personal hurt that you can't turn off. That's what he's injecting into that anger. You're angry at something. But he injects the memory of it in a way that you can't turn it off. And all of a sudden that anger of the injustice or because of some wrongdoing or because of a hurt that's been caused to you, some pain, all of a sudden it becomes bitterness. And that bad memory, that infection begins to corrupt all of our other relationships. And so how do you deal with it? Well, it's because we're not very obedient and it's because we're, we're really, you know, only in agreement with God with so much of this that we don't deal with it with the armor of God. What do we do? We deal with it in common sense. And so to somebody that's going through a tough time, we say, hey, you know, somebody out there has got to have it worse than you. Let me ask you something, church. Do you think that Jesus is happy that we're able to overcome something that's tough in our life because somebody else is more miserable? Man, think about, think about the tragedies that you've, you've, that you've experienced in your own life. Is that the kingdom way of overcoming a, a, a terrible tragedy in your life is by the happy thought that somebody has it worse. Or we say, you know, I'm sure everything will turn out all right. Ask Job about that. Or to someone struggling with guilt, we say, hey, think about all of the good things that you've done in this life. Or to that person struggling with guilt, we say, hey, there's no use crying over spilled milk. Or to someone who's struggling with obsessive worry, we say, try not to think about it. That really works. Or this too shall pass. Or worry doesn't solve anything. You know, trying to deal with the spiritual warfare on the level of conventional human wisdom does not work. It does not work. It has never worked. It will not work and trying to battle the rulers, and trying to battle the authorities and the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms with your own resources will not work. Why? Because these powers are older and stronger than you are. And if God allowed it, these powers would pick up mountains and they would throw them at you. And your stoicism... And your intelligence and your strength and your positive mental attitude is not a match for them. That's why you need the armor of God. Only God is a match for these beings. Now to the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand firm then with the, uh, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You know, Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, therefore gird up the loins of your mind. We are to put on the belt of truth. Now, first question, what in the world is it? What is it? Well, one of the interesting things you notice as you look over the list of the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the feet shod with the gospel of, of peace, that this belt of truth is not really a weapon in the traditional sense. Now, don't tell my dad that. <laughs> you know, when we were growing up, he welded the belt pretty well. 
But in fact, you know, if you read some of the older translations, you will get words like gird up in the American Standard or girt in the King James Version. And the idea is that you are being, you're putting on the girdle of truth. You know what women call that? A foundational garment. And that's what truth is. Truth, the belt of truth, is the foundation for everything else. Now, that's different. That's saying something different than the sword of the Spirit. The belt of truth is the foundation for everything. In the ancient world, what you had were these long, loose, flowing clothes. And if you had to do something like harvest the field or go to battle or chase down a sheep, in Cody's story, what you did is you would gather all of those, those loose uh, robes up and you would tuck them into your belt so that you were kind of girded around the waist, your legs were free, and you could move about swiftly to do some strenuous action. Now, from a practical standpoint, you really can't do anything in the ancient world until you do this, except maybe sit around or even take a walk. And it's the same thing that Paul's trying to get across to us here in Ephesians 6. Foundationally, at the core... In your innermost parts, you are putting on the belt of truth, which means that you're applying God's truth to the foundation of your life. It's not, it's not a, a, an extension. It's not a tangent. It's not a wing of that foundation. It is the foundation. You're applying God's truth to the innermost part of your being. You're taking God's truth and applying it to your core. Well, if that's what it is, then how in the world do you put it on? I mean, it's metaphors here. Well, the first and most obvious answer is this. You believe the Bible is God's Word. Let me say it again. You believe the Bible as God's Word. You know, Jacob did something this morning at the end of the reading that has become kind of a, a, a tradition here at Mac. We always end our public reading of Scripture with the words, what? This is, there's a reason for that. It is a reminder that we as a church believe that the Bible is an authoritative truth from God on which we build our lives. It is the truth that gets to the innermost part of our being. It's the truth we obey even when we don't think we agree with it. It's the objective truth that trumps all of our feelings. And that's why we have to study it and we have to dig into it. But more than that, we have to let the Word of God get all the way into us. I mean, when's the last time that you were doing a reading of the Bible and you said to yourself, you know what, these are orders that I'm under. These are marching orders. These are orders of action. It's, it's that voice that is confronting your character. And when you become a Christian, your mind wakes up to God's truth. And where you may have never thought about these things in the past, now you think, how do I think about money in light of God's Word? And now that I'm a disciple of Jesus, how do I think about sex in light of God's Word? And, and now that I'm a Christian and my mind is waking up to God's truth and the Spirit is in me, sanctifying not only my life but my mind, how do I think of relationships in light of God's Word? When you become a disciple of Jesus and that Spirit comes and dwells inside of you, and you're putting on that armor of God, what you are doing effectively is saying that from this point on, I no longer take my cues from the culture around me. It is God's Word that becomes the culture around me. And we don't come to our Bible classes. And, and we don't come to worship, to relax, and to be entertained. You know what we come to do? 
to be challenged and, and to study and, and, and to be confronted and, and, and our character to be shaped, which is never an easy thing to do. I can tell you after, since 1974, what is that? Uh, that's like 90 years. <laughs> it's, your, your character is always shaped. And it's never easy. I mean, think about Paul. I mean, how did Paul put up with all of that scorn? He'd go into those towns, sometimes by himself, sometimes with a couple of his friends, his, 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 his posse. And he'd go into these towns and he would have to put up with the scorn and the loneliness. A lot of times imprisonments and beatings. One time they stoned him, dragged him out of the, out of the town and left him for dead. How did he deal with it? In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. In thinking about all of the things that Christ accomplished for him. He said, you know, I don't consider that our present sufferings are worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, a lot of times for us, those are just words. I mean, that's a sentiment. That's a, that's a scripture that, that, uh, that we read on cards. You know what it was for Paul? Belt of truth. Foundation. It was his girdle. It was his belt that he had, his, his, his metaphorically speaking, his, 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 his cloak tucked into so that he had his spiritual legs underneath him. He thought it out. It wasn't stoicism. It wasn't gritting it out. It was thinking it out. Which leads to a, a second point, and, and we'll be done with this. You allow that message to shape you. You're, you're fighting a battle. And it looks like you're beginning to lose. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes running to the front lines where the fighting is the most fierce and where, or where people are, are in danger. And they're, they're doing that wrestling. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat on the ground. And they say, listen, I see reinforcements coming. Soon we're going to outnumber the enemy three to one. What does that do to you? Well, in that moment, in, in, in terms of the physical battle, nothing has changed in that moment in terms of fighting men. But in that moment, you're changed because of the message. It's like you've been put into a tower and you can see in the distance. Your perspective is different. Your thinking is rearranged. Your attitude towards the fight is altered. And what that means is you're putting on that belt of truth and you're going into that battle and you're seeing more and you're knowing more than just that there is this being that is bearing down on me. And I'm telling you, church, un un until you have that belt of truth that you are not in agreement with, but you are in 100%, not just agreement, but in 100% obedience with, then your soul is still going to be torn from time to time. And you're going to be wondering why you're not making advances after all of these years. I'm still bitter. And I still feel worthless. And I see my failures more than I see my victories. The guilt is overwhelming at times. I feel like I'm about to be overwhelmed. I'm so tired. You'll still be wondering about that. You know, friends, there is a huge difference between growing old in a pew and growing up in the kingdom. And one of the things that is at the very heart of the spiritual battle 
is the recognition that we have got to have as the foundation, the core, the thing that gets all the way in. It's when you put that coin in, in, the, in the Coke machine and you wait to hear it go all the way down before you can access that soft drink. It's that Word of God that's got to go all the way from the mind into the heart, into the soul, and change the way that you live and think and respond and react to everything in life. And then what you're going to find is that all of a sudden there's a poise in your life. That when somebody says something about you that you don't really find attractive, you're not devastated by it. Or if there's a tragedy and you feel that sadness and God gives us tear ducts and we cry and there are times when we weep with those that weep, but we're not destroyed, nor do we feel that we're defeated because of it. Or that when we find, find ourselves in that position where we know that there are heartstrings that are resonating inside of us to that, that voice, the temptation, do we feel that we're out of resources? I'm telling you, church, when people, when, when, when people look at our church family, I don't want them to see people that go through the motions. I don't want them to see people that, that have rearranged their schedule on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but really have never rearranged their heart. I don't want them to see people that, 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 that talk a good fight, but when it comes to the fight, fall, them, you know, fall down at, at, at the drop of a hat. But I want people to see in our church family brothers and sisters who are overcoming racism and overcoming greed and becoming generous and, and not being mean-spirited but gracious and filled with grace because every day they know that they're sheep that were lost and, and as hard as it is to chase down a sheep, we were caught. We were caught by the cross of Jesus. That's His crook in which He brings us back to Him. And, and to see in our church a love that, that sprouts out of the place where, where the, the, the drops of Jesus' blood hit the ground at our feet as we're covered with sin. And we're transformed and changed by that into lovely, lovely, beautiful people that look just like Christ in everything that they do and say and feel and respond and react to. And it begins by making a decision. that I'm going to make that truth the foundation of everything and live out the ramifications. I'm going to study the Word of God and let the chips fall where they may. But it's God's voice that's speaking to me. This is God's Word. We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that our church family can minister to you this morning in any way in helping you to be introduced to, to Jesus, finding your sins being forgiven through them, being washed away and confession and repentance or, or counsel or prayer or encouragement or whatever it might be. We're in this together. We're a family, amen? We are a family, amen? We are a family, amen? We are the family of God. And He is our Father and we're here for each other. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, take my life. May